9 out of 10 startups fail. Women and minority-led companies receive less than 10% of all venture capital. This is an environment designed for failure. Startup Hype Man's mission is to use the power of story to make success inevitable, not the exception. And this podcast is designed for entrepreneurs to share lessons learned from their stories so that you can figure out what whatever it takes means for your company to make it. Let's kick it. From the Hype HQ Recording Studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I am your host and the Startup Hype Man, Raj Nation. Every week we bring you real talk and unpack the behind the curtain strategies with the entrepreneurs who are doing it or who have been there, done that, all to help your startup grow up and stand out. Join the Hype Nation to catch every new episode, plus get resources and other stuff that actually help you, not the whack promotional junk that other companies try to shove down your throat. All you have to do is add your email at startuphypeman.com. Ready for some real talk? Time now for me, Raj Nation, to turn it over to, well, me, Raj Nation, for this week's conversation. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Today on the show, we welcome Susanna Balin. Susanna is the founder and CEO of Advice Coach, based out of New York City. What is Advice Coach? It is a platform that digitizes treatment plans and communication between healthcare providers and patients. Advice Coach ensures that the care prescribed in the office is followed effectively after patients return home when they spend their time in recovery. So if you've ever been to a physical therapist and they give you these good exercises and you do them while you're in physical therapy and then your physical therapy ends or you have to go home and they're like, do these exercises. You kind of put that piece of paper in the corner of your desk and never look at it. Advice Coach is here to help make sure that you actually do those exercises by connecting you with the physical therapist. They are based out of New York City. They've got 1,100 patients on the platform spread out across five clinics who are their customers. Currently, the monthly revenue sits at 2K, self-funded. Susanna is also a member of the New York Angels, so she makes investments herself. Susanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rajiv. I'm thrilled to be here. I hope I did your introduction justice there. Uh, you, I'm sure that I wrote it for you, so <laughs> it should be perfect. <laughs> well, that said, our topic today, which I think is a really interesting one because it's going to hit on more people than I think they even think themselves, but it's about how do you build software for non-technical users? Can you tell me why this is on your mind? Why is this important to you? Uh, so basically, I'm a non-technical user, right? I... Um, I have my phone with me at all times, and the only apps and the only software that I interact with are the simplest. And what my experience has been just as a user is that those technologists out there, the engineers, get feature greedy. And that ends up uh, you know, leading to a lot of churn. So we did a lot of work trying to figure out exactly how much we could ask an end user to do. And and so I'd love to share that with your audience. Fantastic. And I'm very excited to dive all into that because I think, as you mentioned, a lot of us are non-technical users, whether we want to believe it or not. Before we get into all of that, let's learn more about you. Now, you, I mentioned you're based out of New York. Are you New York slash East Coast born and raised? I am. 
New Jersey Turnpike, exit nine. <laughs> I was brought up in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, uh, and uh, have basically lived here uh, in the tri-state area forever. Okay, so you're, you're, you're tri-state, born and raised. Do you feel that you have that East Coast edge to you? And if so, how do you think that plays out in, in the way you run your business? Oh, wow. What a question. Um, uh, I guess I'd have to say yes, in that I'm outcome oriented, right? I want things to happen quickly because they can where we are. Um, but remember, I grew up when everything was offline. There was no online. When I called someone and they weren't home, I couldn't leave a message. I couldn't text them. I couldn't email them. So the pace was a lot slower when I was growing up. So I think I'm probably a mix because I grew up in that slower time. And yet now I'm a tech entrepreneur. So um, get that deck out by 9 p.m. tonight, right? <laughs> okay, so that's an interesting point that you made. You grew up when, you know, in the pre-internet, pre-even personal computer era. And mm -hmm. that has, that's paired with now literally working on software every day of the week, even the weekends. So do you think you're, it's hard because you're obviously not other entrepreneurs, but if you were to compare yourself to others who at least you've met, mm -hmm. do you think you're more patient than the average entrepreneur? I hope so. Um, and here we get a little of my own, you know, I'm going to stand up on my podium for just a couple of seconds. So um, I love Reid Hoffman. And I love lean strategy. And I, um, I agree that you have to put things out there. Otherwise, there's no way for you to get feedback. But the cycle of create, test, you know, pivot or iterate, create, uh, test, iterate, create, test, iterate is expensive. It's expensive in lots of resources. It's expensive in time. It's expensive in money. And most entrepreneurs I know are I'm surrounded mostly by people under 35 who don't have a whole lot of time to prove whether or not they can make a living at their entrepreneurial venture. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm more patient. I think I'm just more realistic. Mm. Well, and, and that's an interesting point you bring up that the younger entrepreneurs don't, can't afford the time to wait to prove because they have to make their living. You've already, you know, you've made a pretty good living for yourself. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You are, you are breathing rare air in that you have been to Harvard. You've gone to Harvard twice. <laughs> you did an undergrad and a graduate degree there. I just couldn't get away. Tell me what in your, what is that, six, seven, maybe even eight years you spent there in total. What do you feel you learned at Harvard that has helped you the most in your career? Um, I'm not sure if Harvard makes any difference, but I do think that when you're surrounded by exceptional people, you realize how critically important it is to have exceptional people around you. And the difference. Um, between having that and not having that. Um, so when you hear hiring, pod, you know, when you, I'm sure you have podcasts on hiring, 
and everyone says, you know, you have to hire the A person because if you hire the B person, then they hire the C person. And mm. um, it all sounds very formulaic. But um, the people I was surrounded with worked really hard. And they had a lot of grit, a lot of determination. Um, and what I learned was that the only things that are really satisfying in life meaningful in life or hard. So it helped me not run away from hard things. Wow. Very, very profound. <laughs> <laughs> so after your time there, mm -hmm. you founded something called the RAB Planning Center. And your maiden name is RAB, if I have that correctly. Um, yes. Which involved raising angel financing. Yep. You modeled this after the Kaplan test prep, which was, so this was a seven week program where you were administering career counseling assessment tests, teaching job search skills to recent college graduates and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Can you tell me what the, what was the capital raise process like in <laughs> 1988? Well, I had in between college and business school, I had worked in venture capital when it really was venture capital. Um, and so I had read a ton of business plans. We audited um, portfolio companies for Adler and Company, Hamburg and Quist, and Kleiner Perkins. Um, so I was pretty well versed in what investors looked for in a business plan. And those business plans are like 50 pages long. Um, so you have to do research and user had to know your market, you had to know every inch of your competition. Um, so I saw a huge problem. Most of my college friends took jobs that they weren't suited for. And so how do you solve that problem? Well, you look to academia because they've generally studied these things. They've studied everything um, and found an entire wealth of information about how to pick the right career for you, and then how to take that language and apply it to your job search materials, which in those days were resumes and cover letters and um, preparing informational interviews. Now it's pretty different. Um, so I wrote my business plan. I did, I sent surveys out by mail. Um, I got a huge response rate, and I took all of that data, and I networked, um, and I got money very fast. Uh, which, you know, I was young, uh, you know, on the other side, as an investor, I see that um, unless you've worked for Amazon and Google and Apple, and then you have credibility and there's a certain level of trust, making a investment in a young entrepreneur is a somewhat of a transference experience, right? You're a 60-year-old person who sees a 20-year-old person who reminds you of yourself and you have the disposable income to take a bet. So I raised money very fast. I raised $400,000 and like many entrepreneurs today, I spent it very quickly. <laughs> I had beautiful office space. All of the materials were made from leather, notebooks and I did a huge marketing campaign on the subway in Boston. And by the time I found Product Market Fit, which was not with recent college graduates, but with 
employees in their early 30s who had actually experienced how bad it was to have the wrong job for 10 years and had the money to pay me. I ran out of money. I sold the IP and um, it was a great learning experience. So I've done everything 180 degrees differently this time. <laughs> we are going to do something in the interest of time that I don't think we've ever done on this show before, which is fast forward almost 30 years. <laughs> so let's talk about Advice Coach, which you've been <laughs> working on since May 2014. I mentioned at the top of this episode, I gave the background on Advice Coach and sort of the way. Yeah. Can you talk to us about how you got involved in this line of work in the first place? Okay, so clearly I look for problems. And the problem that I found in 2014 was that I couldn't remember anything. And I certainly couldn't remember the things that I absolutely needed to remember. Um, I won't go into it, but our technology was initially developed for a publishing use case. Um, and we found that in order to speed up the sales process, we needed a content owner that had an urgent need for their end user to implement their instruction. So we pivoted into healthcare. Um, and because we have our phone with us all the time, and because it's so cheap with cloud um, uh, servers to deliver software from any device, um, we decided to focus on a use case that had a, a high need for video content. And I had been in physical therapy. I knew that these sheets of paper were ridiculous, that either you lost them or you couldn't understand them, that 90% of recovery happens at home. Either you do your exercises or you don't. Um, and so that's how our technology shifted into healthcare and now um, physical therapy, though our technology itself is a content delivery system. We really are use case agnostic. Um, but as every entrepreneur who listens to your podcast knows, there are lots of opportunities for you. And you have to pick one that you personally understand well so that you can communicate easily with whomever you're selling to. And that's why I picked physical therapy. Awesome. Now, just to remind everyone, as we dive into sort of the meat of this conversation now, mm -hmm. uh, Advice Coach, Susanna's company, is focused on taking, you know, say your physical therapist, for example, they give you those at-home exercises to do, usually on a sheet of paper. When mm -hmm. you go home, you tend to just put that piece of paper away and not really do it. This is now providing a video portal where the PT can access the patient through video and show them the workout or show them the, the exercise or whatever that might be. Right. Now, the topic is how do you build software for non-technical users? In your right. case, the non-technical user, it could be anyone from the 75-year-old going through occupational therapy to the 28-year-old athlete who's coming off of surgery. So if we're- Wait, don't forget, don't forget the physical therapists. And, and yeah. The yeah. people who I'm- who the, the people, people you're who selling, to, selling yeah. to. Yes. Right? So we've got a multitude of different- archetypes here, if we will, right? You have the customer, the physical therapist, right. you have the end user, which again, could be any number of people. Where was your starting point to figure out how do I build this? Did you start with end user patient in mind or, or physical therapist in mind? Um, so you have to start with who's going to pay you. Um, so the first step was to find physical therapists who were already using video, who had their patients take out their phone and either take a video of the uh, therapist 
uh, demoing an exercise or uh, the therapist would take a picture of the patient demoing the exercise. So my early adopters already believed that the highest quality of care was a customized exercise, personalized for that patient's pain threshold, body type, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the first obstacle that we had to jump over was how is this going to slow, is this going to slow down my workflow, right? So uh, physical therapy is a transaction for service business, right? If they're not seeing a patient, they're not getting paid. Mm -hmm. So throughput is very important. So we worked with a physical therapist until the uh, UI and the UX actually made it faster for them to create a dynamic video during the appointment, then print out a piece of paper, circle an exercise, write notes by the exercise, show someone what they're supposed to do, and make sure that they understood what the exercise, how it was written. That is a process that is incredibly time-consuming and lengthy. <laughs> what you mentioned, though, was that you, you know, your early adopters are essentially people who are already doing something similar. Like they already had the wherewithal to take out their phone at the very least, open the camera app, and either take a photo or a video and then send it to the patient. Mm -hmm. So did you then build with that exact person in mind, or did you build with the, the one layer removed from that, which is still the person who's, who's de-digitized? That's exactly right. What you do is you start with someone who has the energy and the enthusiasm for what you're doing and is willing to put up with all your bugs, is willing to put up with all the mistakes you make. I mean, you make so many errors, right? You decide this is what they want, and this is what they want, and this is what they want. Um, and so we worked with a few early adopters in, you know, pre-revenue, right? No, just they were doing me a favor, right? Mm -hmm. Um, until we got the, um, the click-throughs down to such a simple uh, flow that we tried it out on a 55-year-old you know, physical therapist who only saw Medicare patients. And that is where you saw, hey, this is even working for that person. It's, it's that That's exactly now. right. Okay. That's exactly right. And then we have, so in order to make these playbooks, you go on a, um, into a SaaS platform. The playbooks themselves uh, can be made by anybody, right? You, you could go on to advicecoachapp.com right now and create a playbook um, for, I don't know if you have children, but you could put all the chores they have to do for the week and then they can download our app for free and find your playbook. And then you can send a push notification to them uh, from your phone saying, look on Monday, just uploaded a, video, a selfie video, please watch it. And you can say, by the way, when you're cleaning your room, make sure you put your shoes in the closet or whatever. Mm. Um, so we had to develop a very simple um, process for creating that playbook, right, for people who are not, um, who are not technical. And uh, here's one mistake we made. We decided that if we had one screen, that would be best, right? If you said everything you need here is on one screen, mm. people would say, wow, this is so easy. Wrong, wrong, wrong. 
more than one thing on a screen, you lose, it's too much friction. So we ended up, like Typeform, which is brilliant UX, one question at a time, and we got the questions down to four. So you can create a playbook by answering four questions, and in seconds, it will um, be published on any iOS or Android phone. And I'm not, I, I, I'm, so what I'm, what I'm trying to get across is that no matter how simple a engineer thinks the user experience is, it's not simple enough. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think that I, that notion you brought up there that you thought the one screen would be the answer. I, I think in the moment, and if you're not thinking with enough of a design mind, it makes logical sense. But though, if you really take a step back and think about how we use things ourselves, we tend to like sequential processes that we can follow. You mentioned Typeform and how it's got brilliant UX and UI. Mm -hmm. Part of that brilliance is that you feel like you are accomplishing something while you are going through it. Hmm. Right? It okay. shows you the progress I, I, at the bottom. At the bottom. Um, that's, that's true. Um, I will tell you that if you ask people to do more than six things, you're going to lose them. Hmm. So a progress bar is fine as long as you're not asking me to have too much progress. You know, I'll start. Um, so, and who knows, maybe I'm, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not a UX designer. I'm not a UI professional. Um, I know that there is a wonderful, wonderful book that I read when I first started this business called Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. Have you read that? Don't make me think. I haven't, but okay. I'm writing it down. Okay. Um, he wrote it in, uh, wait, I have it in front of me, in 2014. And it's basically a brilliant um, system for design theory from a psychological viewpoint. Mm. Um, and you know, we can't get away. We can't get beyond our own biases. It's one thing, you know, you can study this and you're still going to have your own biases. So you can't do this by yourself. You know, for those entrepreneurs, um, out there who are developing, uh, any kind of technology, the reason you want lots of feedback is just because you're projecting your own values on whatever it is you're doing. You can't escape that, right? Read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. It's part of our biology. And if you apply that to the development of any user experience, um, it makes you feel pretty humble pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you talk about gathering feedback there. So, you know, as I'm starting to map out what you're saying, you, you mentioned, hey, start off with who's going to pay you, which is likely going to be the early adopters who are already doing something similar, even if it's not using your product. Or, mm -hmm. or the technology you're building, but they're doing something that indicates behavior in that direction because they will be willing to put up with your bugs, your mistakes, and your errors. So would you say step two of this process then is to be gathering feedback? And if so, how and when do you gather feedback? Yeah, I'm not the first person who said get out of the, uh, <laughs> leave your office. Um, <laughs> I think that's a pretty, um, it's, it, that's a pretty well-known statement. Um, you know, this is also where I'm 
you know, my background is somewhat uh, harmful because nowadays, if you ask people, well, how much user research do I have to do? And they say, well, if you talk to between five and eight people, that's a good idea. You know, in my day, if someone told me talking to eight people would be enough for doing user research, I would have been laughed out of the room huh. because statistic. first of all, we all know statistically that's crazy, mm -hmm. right? But no one wants to believe that it's going to take more time or cost more money because they don't have the time and they don't have the money. So they have somehow convinced themselves that eight people, I don't know, have you heard this? Eight to 10 people is sufficient to iterate a product. Mm. I haven't heard that exact number, but I do okay. know people tend to just ask a few people and, and, or, or whatever, some small group, and then go from there. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, um, it's not a scientific process, and I'm not saying that you need to do random studies, but you have to be very careful if you're only asking eight people. And I'm not talking about friends and family. Don't ask friends and family because they're all just going to give you good feedback because they want you to be happy. I'm talking about you really being extremely thoughtful about what each person's bias is toward whatever it is you're asking them for feedback about. Um, and that's a longer conversation, but that's the only way that when you compile the data, it's going to have any substance to it. And that's my fear with these small numbers is that you ask these few people, you then iterate on their feedback and their data, and then it doesn't, the outcome is not what you expected. Mm. And it may be how you are, you know, phrasing the questions, who you've chosen to ask. Um, uh, you know, I, I started, I'm not a technical, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not a technical founder, so, but I taught myself balsamic and I did wireframes. And I realized very quickly that you can't explain technology. I mean, you think you can, but you can't. You have to watch someone actually clicking through. And the Envision prototypes, which are helpful, are ugly. And whereas about, you know, maybe somewhere between six and 10 years ago, no one cared what things looked like, right? Now you have an entirely different um, uh, audience. If something doesn't work and something doesn't look good the first time they try it, it is very hard to get them back. So where, where you know, people are showing you what Twitter looked like in the early days and what Facebook looked like in the early days, forget about that. That is not a lesson for you today, right? Everything in context. Mm. So I strongly suggest, I've always, you know, I, I believe that having a designer as a team member on a part-time basis uh, is a critically important part of designing the workflow for the non-technical user um, uh, because that's what they're used to seeing. Um, anyway. Well, this is, this is interesting because it, it does go against the grain of what a lot of the advice and a lot of the advice that I, I, you know, I even prescribe to or prescribe or subscribe to, I don't know which one. Uh, anyways. A lot of the advice that I follow around building things is minimum viable product, minimum viable product, get something that works uh, good enough and put it in people's hands. Are you suggesting don't do that and instead 
be very careful before you put it in anyone's hands. Yeah, you know, those three, those three words, minimal and viable and product can be defined in many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, uh, I think MVPs are a crutch. Uh, I think raising money is a crutch. I think entrepreneurs measure their progress by these uh, milestones when they're not tangible. They're, they're not sustainable. That's a better word. They're not sustainable. Um, raising money doesn't mean you have a product that you're going to be able to sell at the right price to, make, to be profitable. Uh, making an MVP does not mean you've created something that people are going to use. Um, so that concerns me. And again, I think it has a lot to do with where I came from, where we had to do much more preparation before we could say we've made any progress. Well, and I think to your earlier point, everything in context, I think that's even key here, right? Like just the... MVP is a standalone thing. It's like, yes, MVP, if you've researched well enough and the core user mechanics mirror the actual product, maybe, the, maybe it doesn't look as pretty as it could, but you're building with the right user behavior in mind and the right um, usage of it. Is that, is that at all? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, you know, I'm just, I can only project my, what I, what I, where I am and who has used my technology. Yeah. But, um, but I will tell you that people have no patience and they expect they, that the, consu the, cons the end user is not a techie. They can't see past ugly. They can't see past, oh, the button's too small. They can't see past, oh, it doesn't matter whether I put the button on the top or the bottom. If their uh, keyboard covers any part of the button, they don't believe that you have technology that works properly. <laughs> they don't. You know, so, if, you know, so you have to be very careful um, saying, oh, well, don't worry. You know, we'll fix that later. They're not going to use it. Yeah, and I think, you know, and you're right, it's the people who will use it are the ones who happen to be your friends or you know in some way who have some other, and you talk about the bias, right? Some other vested interest for supporting you. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, yeah, send it again when it works and I'll look at it again. But the true cold user who you didn't have a previous relationship with of any kind, mm -hmm. the tolerance for bad or, or, or not working properly is so low. And, I, and I'm saying that from my own experience using different products or apps that just didn't quite work how I wanted them to. I'm like, eh, this, this, this doesn't work. I don't want to waste time trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do see where you're coming from in that respect. Um, can you talk through then? So what I've got so far is you talked about start with, we'll pay you, be sure to gather feedback. And, and be thoughtful about existing bias. Can you talk through what is a good way to gather feedback? And are you actively asking them questions or are you just sitting back and observing? Uh, to be honest, the best way to get feedback is to put your product in the environment, we spoke about context, where it's going to be used. Um, you can't sit in a coffee shop and show someone 
your SaaS platform for doing billing. Right? Right. It, it, you have to um, have a very simple onboarding video that they can follow, and then you give it to them and you tell them they need to use it. And if they, and follow if they're using it and what they're doing and what they're not doing, and write them a text and say, I saw that you clicked in and you did one thing and then you left. Was it too, you know, why? Uh, you haven't been on for three days, why? This is a really key point here, and I don't want anyone listening to gloss over this. Put it in the environment it's going to be used. I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startups, that's an area they overlook. The coffee shop thing you mentioned, I've seen it happen a lot. Hey, can you take a look at my app? You know, something like that. But the reason, come back to that idea of context, and the mm -hmm. reason why the environment matters is that person, their, their frame of reference has now shifted to how do they operate, how do they think, how do they act when they are at work, when mm -hmm. they are at school, when they are insert you know, location or insert activity. And although we are, you know, we're all generally the same people or whatever, individually, like we have a personality and we go and do different things, our brain is set up to function or from our previous experiences we know when we go and do something in this environment, our brain is, is having us behave in a different way slightly than when we are maybe at home. And it's also, mm -hmm. also factored into that is who's around us, right? Is there social mm -hmm. pressure of some kind that forces us to think or act in a certain way? It's exactly right. There's a wonderful um, study of uh, smoking cessation where they found the percentage of people who stopped smoking on vacation, okay, in an entirely new environment with a different routine, um, you know, diff your senses, every, every sense, right, is experiencing something new. They were able to sustain the smoking cessation longer than anyone else. Wow. Because your routine is broken. And what you're trying to do to change behavior is change your routine. Mm. So the opposite is true when you're trying to sell a product into a environment, right? You want to make sure that it fits the routine. Right. Right. Now, the last sort of area I want to ask you about before we wrap up here is what did you do on this? for the end user of the patient in this case? Um, did you, and is, is that a separate app that they are experiencing or a separate, separate user flow entirely that they're experiencing? Yeah, so everything started with the patient because um, when I was building the business model, whereas the provider has incentive to speed up recovery, um, you know, get bonus reimbursements by delivering the highest quality of care, et cetera, et cetera. If the patient doesn't use it, you're, you're dead, mm. right? So most businesses, I believe, are B2B to C, we, because the C is the person, 
right? We call the C the consumer and B the business. You know, you're always selling to a person. I know these acronyms have a place, but <laughs> so who's, who's using it? And that was easy for me because I was the patient. So I knew exactly how much friction there was in getting my exercises done at home. I knew that I wanted to click twice, maybe even once, and we got it down to one click to get to my exercises. I wanted to make sure I heard my provider talking to me. I wanted all of the extraneous information, sets, reps, intensity, frequency, in, one, in the same place my video was. And I wanted a quick way to send feedback if something hurt and I didn't know whether I should continue to do the exercise or not. And Can that's you clarify it. one thing for me? Um, sure. You said in this case, you said, well, everything starts with the patient. At the top of this conversation, you said, we'll start with who's going to pay you, which in this case is the providers. Can you reconcile, I guess, what you mean in one case versus the other? Um, the sales process has to work with the person who's paying you. The person who's paying you needs to have their problem solved. If their problem has to do with someone else, that person needs to be able to interact, needs to want to use your product or service. So I know you're looking for an easy answer, and this is a little complicated, but you have to, th those have to be parallel considerations. Now, sometimes you're, you know, selling a product, whoever's paying you is the only person who's using it. But with subscription services, very often your, you know, your customer is the distributor of your content and the end user is the user of the content. And in both instances, their, their click flow, for lack of a better term, I'm sure there's a better way to say it, has to work in their environment. So I knew the patient was going to be interacting with my technology at home, um, doing something they don't want to do, right? It hurts to do your exercises, et cetera, et cetera. So there had to be as little friction as possible. The, um, the provider who's paying me needed to make sure it wasn't going to add time to his day. Um, so you asked about the patient. So I answered that question, but they are both, you know, they're both critically important for my business. Mm. And I would say in anyone who's got the B2B2C model that it's, they should both be critically important. Otherwise it's going to, something's not going to work in that, in that system. Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know where they can find you, learn more about Advice Coach? Sure. So uh, advicecoach.com, if you are in physical therapy, if you know someone in physical therapy who is struggling with those pieces of paper, uh, please send them to the website. They can email me directly at susanna.balen at advicecoach.com. Um, uh, we actually have a way for the patient themselves to have their own playbook that they can walk into their appointment with and 
record the exercises themselves. Their uh, provider doesn't have to be a client. And we provide that service for free. That's a really cool bottom-up approach to then potentially getting actual pro- more providers on the platform. If you can put it in the exactly. end user's hand and then they're using it and the person's like, wait, what's that? Um, so very, that's, a really, that's a really savvy strategy you're implementing there. Um, you may have already answered this in that response right there, but I want to do something here that we haven't done on the show before and now I'm kind of kicking myself that why didn't I do this for all the other episodes I've already recorded this season? But um, for the people listening, who can they, who, who would you like to be speaking with? Who can, you, who can they connect you with if they were to reach out to you? Oh, that's very nice of you to ask. Um, I would love to talk to a orthopedic surgeon. I'd love to talk to a health system. I'd love to talk to the owner of a multi-location physical therapy clinic. I'd love to talk to a therapist working inpatient or home care or outpatient. Um, that would be uh, terrific. I would love to get their feedback. Awesome. Glad I asked because I may have an introduction for you. Yay. <laughs> All right, so to wrap up, we will close how we finish every episode, which is um, our final responses, final takeaways, piece of advice here to our topic question for today. I'll start and then I'll t- throw it to you, Susanna. Uh, the topic today was how do you build software for non-technical users? Uh, my two biggest takeaways from this were out of the gate, find the people who are already behaving in this direction, even if they're not using the software that you have or anything like that or even software, but are they already doing something that indicates a difference from the norm because they will put up with your mistakes. And then the other thing that I thought was really the, the, the real gold nugget out, nugget out of this was put the product in the environment in which it's going to be used to be able to get the most accurate feedback and observations possible. Susanna, how do you build software mm-hmm. for non-technical users? Mm-hmm. Um, make sure you're not asking a non-technical user to understand technology. Um, come at it from a child's perspective. If you were handing it to a six-year-old, how many instructions would you have to give them uh, before they could use it? Um, And uh, also from um, the, uh, you know, one foot in life before the uh, internet and one foot in in today, um, I would say that Take, I would say that this um, need for speed, whether it's, um, you know, developing an MVP or, um, you know, getting, paying, using paid advertising to get lots of people to go to your website are not sustainable business strategies. Uh, And be very careful that you don't fall into that sort of trendy world. She is Susanna Balin, the founder and CEO of Advice Coach, as well as a member of the New York Angels. Susanna, thank you for being on the show today. Rajiv, thank you for having me. It was really fun. That brings us to a close. Did you like what you heard? Did it tingle your earbuds? Support your startup ecosystem and share this episode with another founder to help them. If you don't have anyone in mind, then leave a rating and review of the show on iTunes so more entrepreneurs can learn about it. And if you want more, head to startuphypeman.com and click on the knowledge section to get a bonus blog post written by this week's guest where they unpack the topic even more. Remember, 
sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Startup Hype Man is more than a podcast. In fact, we support startups across the United States and globally develop sales and marketing acumen with messaging that stands out to customers and stands apart from competitors. Learn more and fill out a form at StartupHypeMan.com if you want to chat. Shout out to this week's guests for spending their time with us and shout out to music artist Sir the Baptist for providing our show's theme song. Catch you next time. Hype Man out. Word up. Raise up. Got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Instead of sundown, too. Yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Tell me what you're gonna do. This is dance with the devil, girl. And if you can't get it loose, then they fall into the truth. It got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Instead of sundown, this a dance with the devil, girl. Tell me what you gonna do. No, this a dance with the devil, girl. And if you can't get it loose, then it's, it's a dance with the devil.